This is the Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. It sure seems like the one thing we lack in the world right now is common sense. And in fact, you might call it the death of common sense. And today, we're going to discuss what do we do about it? How do we get common sense back into the dialogue, especially when it comes to economics, financials? Um, how do we talk about things from a common sense point of view instead of uh, you know, a lot of theory and a lot of, well, modeling and all this stuff, and instead actually look at what's the reality of things. And today we have uh, the king of reality when it comes to economics, Howard Yaris from uh, NYU. And Howard, it is truly a pleasure and an honor to have you with us today. Oh, thank you, Tom. It's great to be here. So if you would, give us a little bit about your background and tell us where, uh, you know, where, where this whole topic came from for you. Well, actually, you summed it up a bit. It, it was motivated by a desire to see more common sense in the world. By way of background, I uh, grew up in New York City uh, in a family that often faced financial difficulties, and I became very interested in the economy. And I felt that if I wanted to make the economy better, work to make uh, our government function better, to see better policies implemented, I first had to understand how it all worked. And that's why I studied economics. And that's why I wrote the book, because I want people to understand, I want to help people to understand how the economy works. Just by way of background, I went to public school in New York City. We were required to take trigonometry. Um, yep. We're not required to take economics. I, I have a healthy respect for math. I was a math major, uh, but I, I think that's, I think it speaks for itself. The point is that even on the college level, for the minority of Americans who've taken economics on the college level, it's offering a, offer a bewildering array of jargon, formulas, graphs, assumptions, that people have perfect information, that the, there, there are just so many assumptions. So that I wanted to write a book that didn't have any of that jargon, any of those assumptions, just basically showed how the economy worked. And my hope, the hope was that with better understanding, people would be less likely to be fooled by uh, politicians with ulterior motives or other people with ulterior motives and support better public policies leading to a better economy for everyone. That was the goal of the book. I, I like that. It reminds me of a, of a story an economist told me once said, you can tell the economist uh, uh, on this um, street, uh, you can tell which house belongs to the economist by all the hedges around the house. So. <laughs> Well, supposedly Harry Truman said he wanted a one-armed economist. <laughs> I love it. Anyway, so um, so the, the book is Understandable Economics, which I love. I mean, you know, we were talking earlier, you know, my my goal is to make taxes, I, I call it fun, easy, and understandable. And so Understandable Economics, I, I love the idea of it. Um, but let's get to this whole that idea of the death of common sense. What do you mean by that? What do you mean when you say common sense is, is, is dead and it's, it's absent in our uh, economic policies? I think people are often intimidated, as we discussed before we started this, this talk, that people are intimidated by taxes and they're intimidated by economics. First of all, as we, we just discussed, they don't take it in school. Uh, when they do take it, in the rare case where they do take it in college, it's offering a bewildering array of, of formulas and graphs and jargon. So I think people 
are intimidated by it. And so they, they are more likely to believe what they're told by a pundit or a politician or someone with an ulterior motive. And they don't use their common sense to put a check on what they're being told. They often just accept it um, and do not feel that they're capable of analyzing it. I think this I could illustrate this best with an example. The yep. federal deficit, the federal debt, I'm sorry, $34 trillion. That's an enormous sum of money by anyone's standards. Um, but I'll, I'll be candid. I can't get my head around that number. $34 trillion sounds a lot like $34 billion. In fact, I remember a congressperson mixing up billions and trillions. The congressperson was mixing it up. And the point is, it's the same as my telling you I had this delicious sandwich for lunch. I don't remember if it was $10 or $10,000. It was just good. I just, I can't remember what it was. That's the same order of magnitude. So what I do in the book is I break it down per American. It's $70,000 per American. Now there are, there are all sorts of political views. There are all sorts of views as to what makes sense. But at least we can begin to just start discussing rationally and in a common sense way whether that makes sense or not. What are we getting for our $70,000? Is $70,000 too much for each American? It's an attempt to begin to have an informed, productive discussion. No, so so th this is interesting to me. Um, there's been a lot of discussion over the last several years about uh, modern monetary theory, um, which suggests that you can just print money. And uh, if you get inflation, all you have to do is tax and, and, and you can tax people and that will then stem the inflation, which, which common sense would tell you politicians don't like to raise taxes on the people they would have to raise taxes on, which is the people who are spending the money. So this is the challenge I have with this, what I call magic money theory, which is we just print all the money we want. If there's inflation, we'll just tax it back. The, 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 the tax has to come from the people they put the, gave the money to in the first place. It can't come, it's the people who spend the money that you have to tax. It's not the people who invest the money. So, um, so what's your, let's just start with that. I mean, it's, it's, it, am I am I off base that that just makes no sense to me? Okay, there's a lot there. Modern monetary theory uh, has some some factual grounding in it, back from John Maynard Keynes in the 1930s. Um, I would argue, and I argue in the book, that modern moder monetary theory is not modern. It's not theory. Arguably, it deals with money. What are they saying? They are saying that the government has a printing press. Right. Deficits, deficits technically don't matter. The government could just print money for whatever it wants unless it's going to cause inflation. And from a technical perspective, that is right. If they, the government does have the, the, the authority to print money, it could, right now they've ceded it to the Fed, um, like in Weimar, Germany, and maybe this will show you where I'm going. They could take it back and give it to our, uh, the, the, the clever people we have running our US Congress. And if they took it back, they can print, they would be able to print money. They would have the legal right to, to um, give to themselves the ability to print money. And as long as they, they didn't print much of it, didn't increase the money supply too much, it probably wouldn't cause inflation. The main flaw with modern monetary theory is, do you trust these people? Do you trust these people to keep, to keep trickling out just a, a few dollars or just 
the num more accurately the number of dollars that that refers to how how much our economy is growing. Do you trust them not to print more money, print money faster than our than our the speed at which our economy is growing? I don't. And well, let, let's let's look at let, look, let's look at this, Howard. Since twenty since beginning of twenty twenty, how much money do they print? Oh, there was an enor enormous increase in the money supply since then. Yes, like yeah. like like ten trillion dollars. Yeah, bank reserves have exploded. Yes, there's been an an, an enormous increase. Yes, and 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 shockingly, the result inflation. We have enormous inflation, mm -hmm. right? And their 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 um their answer to that is, well, you just raise taxes um, because that taxes slow down the economy, right? You really want to slow down the economy. You, you, you tax, frankly, if you really want to slow the, down this economy, uh, you tax the middle class. Um, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't raise they're, interest. They're, they're spenders. Yes. You'd tax the spenders, which is the middle class, right? They're, they're the spenders. So that's what you would do. Unfortunately, no, there's no political will to do that. Okay, so it's not, not happening. It's 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 a it's a frivolous answer because it'll never right. happen, and it'll never happen. It'll never ever happen. Okay? One of the few things, all the Republicans and all the Democrats, exactly. where they are on the spectrum, agree. Sure. I mean, I mean, look at look at Social Security. Do we need some changes to Social Security? Well, yeah, because. I mean, look, look what, I mean, Macron, but look how difficult it was. Macron in France, all he wanted to do was increase the retirement age by two years. That's it. And he had massive riots, mm -hmm. increasing the retirement age by two years. So, you know, no, no, no Republican or Democrat, you know, wants to touch that, that stuff. So common sense seems to be completely out the door there. Okay, so let's uh, let let let's go to something else uh, from a common sense standpoint. What else are you saying that you feel completely lacks common sense uh, in the economy? Well, I would point to um, some of our tariff policies. Uh, why do people buy foreign goods? They buy foreign goods because yeah. they're cheaper and better. If they weren't cheaper and better, they wouldn't be buying them in the first place. We always, people always talk about American jobs. Well, it's just a, a, a bit of common sense there. What happens to those dollars when they go abroad? Think of it, dollars go abroad. What happens when they go abroad? Do they have a giant bonfire and burn them? If, they, if, they, if that were the case, we should all go in the business of printing those, those green slips of paper. No, they float around, they go here and there, but ultimately, ultimately they come back to the United States in spending, what do they buy? They buy Boeing airplanes. They buy services at Goldman Sachs. They buy armaments for better or for worse. Or, or they buy treasury bonds. Or they buy treasury bonds. They help fund our deficit. Uh, by the way, this is something that a lot of your listeners may not know. It's it's approximately one quarter of our national debt is owned by foreigners. The other three quarters is owned by Americans. In any event, yes, they 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 buy they buy debt. They buy stock. The money comes back. So this, this idea that we'll put up this wall um, because of, of jobs, what, what would that result in? It would result in you and me not getting those goods that we want from abroad. And it would result, I teach at NYU, if it weren't for foreign students, if it weren't for the ability for foreigners to get dollars in their hands, there would be a lot fewer uh, people teaching at NYU. So the money comes back. So that's that's an example of, of something that if we could have more free trade, we'd all benefit. And yes, the people who 
who sew shirts might lose their jobs in America, but we'd be a richer society and we could figure out how to offer them training, free training or free education or some kind of enhanced unemployment benefits. The book I use this example, if you're a worker and you earn $50,000 a year working 45 hours a week and someone says, hey, you can earn $80,000 a year working 35 hours a week, is that really that awful a trade-off? And obviously it isn't, but that's, that's what, what international trade offers a country. We get more stuff for less effort. And it's just a political uh, dysfunction that prevents us from realizing the benefits from that, from really helping out those, those the minority people who are displaced by free trade and, and celebrating the fact that people at Boeing, NYU, Goldman Sachs are, are employed as a result. Interesting. So, uh, all right. So I'm going to turn to, to an area that is near and dear to my heart. So where do you think uh, we, we've... <laughs> We, we go on for days on this one, but uh, talk about common sense and taxes. Okay, I will. I will. There is this. Uh, Any time that the economy turns down, there's this thought. That there are politicians who claim uh, just a tax cut for the wealthy. Um, and wealthy people, uh, I've been fortunate economically that it looks great. But what, think of, this is something you really don't need advanced economic training to figure out. Think about what happens in, in a downturn or a recession. People aren't spending. People right. aren't spending. Businesses are laying off people, which makes people spend even less. So more people get left off. It's a downward spiral. So someone needs to come in and spend. The conventional economic wisdom that started in the 1930s was the government should come in. The government uh, is the spender of last resort. Another way it could be done is through cutting people's taxes. And we often hear from some politicians that the best taxes to cut are taxes on the wealthy. Well, think about it. What happens when a wealthy person gets a tax cut? They save it. It doesn't go right back into the economy. But when a middle income person or an unemployed person certainly gets a tax cut, they go right out and spend it. And what happens when they spend it? Businesses have more customers. Businesses need to hire more, more workers. And the, the recession, the end of the recession uh, comes into sight. So that's something that we can also, we can talk about the equities of it and the politics of it. But it's something where applying some common sense give, would give someone more insight in, into exactly the effects of these policies. It's not as simple as, well, we believe that uh, protecting private industry and protecting what people earned is one thing. If the goal is to improve the economy, these are things that people with good common sense who look at the world should be able to figure out. So, so as an example, so, so George W. Bush um, uh, changed the withholding um, during his uh, tenure in order to stimulate the economy. In other yeah, words, yeah. He, he, he reduced the amount of withholding um, so the people would have the money to, yeah. to spend. Instead of saving it until they got a refund, they had the money to spend right then. So that's uh, uh, it's the cuts to the people who are paying the withholding that you're talking about. Because that's where, that that's the middle class, right? Yeah, those are the people who, when they get a tax cut, are going to go out and, and, and spend what they get. Got it. Got it. Um, okay. So um, you, you start with understandable economics and that's kind of the, 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 the premise of what you're talking about here in a nutshell. So give us, give us economics in a nutshell. 
Okay, well, there's there are a lot of components to it. Economists divide economics into macro and micro. Macro is how the whole system works. Micro is, is uh, how individuals make decisions. My interest is, is macroeconomics. In the book, I use the example that it makes savings. That's a perfect example, actually. This is not in the book. Um, saving, saving is a good thing. We're always told that. And I, I would be the first one to, I'm sure we'd both be among the first people to say saving is a good thing. But if everyone in America said, ah, we're going to cut back seriously on our spending and all save, the economy tanks. So that's what macro tries to look at. It, it's not just micro, but on a bigger scale. It's, it's the unique way that the, 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 all of us together affect the economy. So what, what do I talk about in macroeconomics? I talk about the Fed. They polled economic students and asked them where new money comes from. The majority did not know. It's just something that people are not taught. They may be taught trigonometry and how the, the angles work, but they don't seem to be taught where money comes from. And, and needless to say, money is probably more of a role, plays more of a role in people's lives than the measurements of an angle. Where does money come from? I talk about the, uh, talk about the Fed. And why do, I, why do I talk about these things? Because in order to use common sense, there is some fundamental knowledge people sure. need. They need to know where money comes from. So I talk about the Fed. The Fed is America's central bank, and it has the ability to create money. Um, without going into too much detail, it's done through the banking system, through bank loans. Uh, so that's something that people should know how it works. And also when people talk about equity and issues of, of justice, you, you really can't comment on those things. It, it really frustrates me uh, because they don't know how the system works to really understand the effects of it. Um, again, you can't change a system you don't understand. I don't think it's fair to criticize a system you don't understand. So people need to understand it. For your entrepreneur listeners, in order to make money in the system, it's, it's imperative to, under, to really understand what's going on. I teach urban real estate economics at NYU, and I always make the point that the biggest impact on real estate, real estate investing, real estate values, is the general economy. I, I talk about this townhomes in Manhattan that when I was a kid, we're selling for $10,000 and I'll sell for $10 million. That's not because they put trees on the street or something, or they renovated the buildings. It's because the economy fundamentally changed. So if you're gonna be an entrepreneur or an investor or a business person, it's, it's in, incredibly important to understand the larger economy because arguably that's the biggest impact on business there is. So if, if there were uh, three things that you would want people to understand about the economy, um, give, give us just three simple things. I mean, for example, if I were giving uh, a, an example of something I'd like people to understand about taxes, I'd say, look, the tax laws, a series of incentives. There's a, it's, it's all about incentives. The tax law is, um, I would tell people, if you want to change your tax, you have to change your facts. That's all there is to it. Um, you know, any, anything can be deductible. Just, just, you know, so there are simple things. There really are simple things, even in complex things like tax law. So what are those simple things that you'd like people, really the base things from a an, an macroeconomic standpoint that you'd like people to understand? Okay, well, I think I, I touched on one of them, where money comes from. It comes from our central bank, the Federal Reserve, through lending. 
I'd like them to understand the business cycle because that's absolutely critical. A lot of students in particular think, well, it's just like the weather, it comes and goes. Well, there are influences on it. And what are those influences? And a lot of people, oh, it's, it's very technical. It's, it's just not, and here's, here's a point I'll make. When the economy turns down, you can look at the economy right before a recession begins and right after a recession begins. Are there fewer factories? Have workers forgotten their skills? Have, has infrastructure been lost? No, it's exactly the same number of factories the month before a recession as well as the month after a recession began. What's changed? People's outlook. It's a psycholog It's you almost always a psychological phenomenon. I'll get into the exception in a moment. It's a psychological phenomenon. There's a reason why the economic ter term for it, a downturn, a severe downturn, depression, is the same exact word as the psychologist's word for a severe downturn, a depression, because it's, it's, it's an economic malaise. There is an exception, and that exception is where you have a war or, or a pandemic and infrastructure is, is destroyed and the economy just can't physically can't supply the goods that it's, it's, it's accustomed to supplying. But fortunately in America, those are rare. Um, the, the, it's called the supply side recession. And we had one recently actually with COVID. The last one that I'm aware of was um, when they had the Arab oil embargo, OPEC oil embargo in the 1970s. But generally 90% of recessions are psychological. The classic one being the 2008 recession. Housing values dropped, people became very pessimistic, and the, the, they cut back on their spending, and the, the, the economy went into a recession. The trick in those situations is monitoring fiscal policy. These are terms that some of your listeners may know, some of them may not. What are monetary fiscal policies? Very simple, one sentence. Monetary policy, inject more money into the economy, fiscal policy, government spends or taxes less. And we already talked about what kinds of taxes are best to cut. Um, obviously inheritance taxes are much less like, if you cut inheritance taxes, they're much less likely to result in a burst of spending than if you cut taxes on, let's say, low-income workers. So those are the two ways. The government, it's, it's not rocket science. It's, it's the government just getting money into the hands of people to spend again. Um, the government could spend, that's fiscal policy, government being a spender of last resort, or it can get people to spend. It's a political decision as to, as to which they fulfill. Okay, so, so you've talked, um, uh, Howard, you've talked a lot about uh, the Fed, yeah. and there's a lot of discussion right now about a central bank digital dollar, which would make it really easy for them to get money directly in people's hands. So um, first of all, would you explain briefly um, for everybody to make sure everybody's on the same page what a central bank di digital digital currency is, and second of all, um, what would be the effect of um, from a from an economic standpoint of a central bank digital currency? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you. Just so everyone's clear, it's very simple. We all have accounts at banks. You, me. Your, the businesses you shop at all have accounts at banks. Banks have accounts at the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is the banker's bank. So we have uh, accounts at the bank. The bank has accounts at, the banks have accounts at the Fed. 
a central bank digital currency would cut out the middleman. We in turn would have accounts at, at the Fed. All accounts at the Fed now, even now are, are digital. They're all electronic. There's no, there's no physical um, money between the Federal Reserve and the banks. It's all electronic. So instead of having the banks as the intermediary, we would just have an account at the, we, all of us would have accounts at the Fed. It would make it very easy to um, transfer money. Um, it would make it very easy for the government to have monetary policy. And what am I talking about? When the economy is, is not doing well, they could tell people with a lot of savings, hey, you don't spend, we're gonna reduce your savings by 10% a year, like a negative interest rate. Right now, you can't really have negative interest rates. If, if Citibank cannot have a negative interest rate. If they said, oh, your, your interest on your checking is negative 10% a year, you grab all your money and put it in a vault somewhere. But if you had a central bank digital currency and did away with the greenbacks, the government would have enormous control over the economy. If they needed more spending, they could just threaten to cut everyone's savings by 10%, go out and spend it. If they wanted people to slow down spending, they would just increase interest rates to whatever they thought was appropriate. So it would, be, it would make monetary policy more efficient. My big problem with it, and here's the big problem, if you cut out banks, how do you get a loan? Who's lending money? And you can go to an individual, but it would be incredibly inefficient. How does a big company that needs several hundred million dollars get a loan? And that's the problem with the central bank digital currency. Right now, we have these private organizations, banks, they take in deposits and lend out money based on those deposits. You could have the Federal Reserve making loans, but that's essentially, this is, it's obvious where this is going, the federal government deciding who gets a loan and who doesn't. Well, would, it's, not, it's not just that, but it's the federal government deciding who's who, who, who loses the 10% and who doesn't lose the exactly. 10%, the right? So there's, I mean- there, there's, you know, with the amount of division we have in this country right now, I mean, honestly, the last thing in the world we need is the government having more power um, over our lives, because that's, a, I mean, to me, a central bank digital currency would be uh, really the death of democracy. I oh, mean, I, I truly believe it would be the death of democracy. For three reasons. One, they would control who, who gets the negative interest rate and how much and when. Um, they would control... Um, who gets the loans, which is enormous power. And this third thing may be most troubling to people. They would know every penny you ever spent. Yep. And that has, they could assure us that it would be kept safe, but there's no guarantee on that. You know, the, the challenge is, the challenge is when, when uh, the 16th Amendment was passed in 1914, the promise was it's only going to apply to the very rich and it's only going to be a small percentage, right? Top rate was 7%. And now who does it apply to? Mostly it applies to the middle class. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's pretty easy for somebody who makes a million dollars or more to pay very little tax um, because the government's figured out we're, we're going to give incentives and all you have to do is do what the government wants you to do and you don't pay any tax. I mean, it's really, it's, it's actually pretty simple. So uh, the, you know, the idea that um, boy, you know, we're, we're the government, um, we're here to help. It's uh, to me, it's a, it's a very scary proposition. Yeah, it, it's a scary pro proposition. And I think it would become obvious if they ever tried to implement it, um, the, 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 the amount of control. Again, anyone who ever saw the loan would have to go to the government for the loan. 
and that kind of power is kind of they would have a monopoly on lending money and I, I don't see how that could how that would be acceptable to most people well i hope not i hope not but that uh, said there's a lot of cryptocurrencies when i start writing the book the market value of all cryptocurrencies was three trillion dollars today it's one trillion dollars and there's a lot of thought that, well, they talk about, I guess I'm segueing from central bank digital currency to private digital currencies. And there's a lot of, some people, maybe many fewer now than maybe a year or two ago, had the idea that that would take over in some significant way. And I'm very skeptical about that as well. Yeah, it, it, of course, the, the primary difference between a, uh, a, a central bank digital currency and a uh, cryptocurrency is cryptocurrency is decentralized. Um, so by definition, it is the opposite of a central bank digital currency. A central bank di digital currency is very centralized. It's centralized in the in the in the um, central bank, right? It's a central bank digital currency, and whereas a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin is completely decentralized. But I want to I, I want to um, I want to take you one more place if I could, sure. um, Howard, because it's something that I've been uh, worried about and I've been thinking about, um, and that is this 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 seemingly seemingly move towards socialism in this country. And to me, I'm I, I hear these proponents of socialism going, that is the least amount of common sense I've ever heard. Um and if you look at China right now, why are you know they 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 rose on capitalism, now they've given up capitalism, they've gone 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 to socialism, and now they're they you know they have all these uh, big companies failing right now, not another real estate company failing. So uh, first of all, why 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 is there this? Is this just a lack of education? Um, why is that? There's this this drift towards. Um, seemingly a drift towards socialism. I want to read the opening line of the first, chap first chapter of the book. What do Helen Keller, Adolf Hitler, Oscar Wilde, Joseph Stalin, and Nelson Mandela all have in common? They all call themselves socialists. Socialists, socialism is a, is a word that really has, is, is almost devoid of meaning. I think what people say in America when, when they talk about socialism is they just want more government control, more government spending. The government should, should be responsible for a larger percentage of the economy. And the government has, is actually- uh, Why, why? I mean, who, who in their life has had a positive impact from the, uh, the, the government, really, honestly? I mean, who says, I want more, more government in my life that's just what I understand. I, the, to me, there's no common sense to that. Okay. My, my view of that is, and this is also in the book, some people say they're for regulation. Some people say they're against regulation. That's a diversionary discussion. We all believe in good regulation, all of us. No sure. one wants the water poisoned. No one wants the air poisoned. No exactly. one wants a 12-year-old without a license driving on the wrong side of the highway. The question is good regulation versus bad regulation. Yep. There are some people on one side of the political spectrum who have never met a regulation they don't like. And there are people on the other side of the political spectrum who have never met a regulation that they do like. And both of them are wrong. And the, we have to use our common sense to come up with regulations that make sense and, and, and make us make the economy better, do a cost-benefit analysis. That's something economists like to do. And be reasonable and use common sense with regard to it. And I think 
there's this ties into what we were discussing at the very beginning. There's a loss of common sense. There are people on one side of the political spectrum where that believe corporations can do no do no good, and we have to impose all of our thoughts on them and regulate everything that they conceivably do. And there are people on the other side of the spectrum who believe it's anarchy. Just it's you know there are different words for it: libertarianism. And the 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 reasonable position, the position that would create the most good for the most people, is somewhere in the middle. Not is regulation good or bad, but is the regulation that's being proposed itself good? And we have to get into that mindset. And it's not a political question. It's a question of dollars and cents. Is this going to make us healthier and wealthier, to use that expression? I, I agree, but to, I, I, I totally agree. No, I mean, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm a, a student of the Internal Revenue Code and the regulations, and there are some good regulations and there are some really bad regulations. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's true in, in the tax law. Um, but I want to come back to something you said, um, which is people want more government. And they want more government in their lives. And I, I'm trying some to- Some people do and some people don't. I'm trying to understand that. Why is it? I, I, my my question is, if we had, um, I mean, you you talk about, you know, very, you know, you don't get much of an economics class in high school or college. Nobody takes tax class. I mean, zero. There are zero tax classes unless you're going to be a tax professional. Zero, and yet tax is something that every single person on this planet deals with every single day. So, well, for most about Americans, the most practical, the most mm -hmm. practical topic. For uh, for for a school, it would be taxes, and yet that's not taught at all. Well, for most Americans, taxes are the biggest expenditure of their life. Of course, it's more than their home, more than anything else. Of course. So so it, is it is it? Um, I I have a th my theory is is that it's primarily a lack of financial education. This because when I hear people talk about socialism and in the benefits of, of of marxism and communism i'm just going you, you haven't read any history no. and and honestly uh, you know it, it's like um uh i i heard once somebody say um and his uh, jordan peterson said this he said capitalism is the worst system we've ever had except for every other system right Right. And so, um, but it, so is it, do you, you think it's just a lack of education? I mean, your goal here is education and understandable economics. Is it, is it that lack of education that caused people to say, well, I don't understand it. Maybe the government understands it better than I do. Well, as I said, I think there are problems on both sides of the political spectrum. We're focusing on the people who want government to do everything. Now there are the people who don't want government to do anything. And they're, 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 in my opinion, as much of a problem, but let's focus on the people who want government to do everything. Um, there was the National Socialism in Germany. There was the Union of Soviet so Socialist emphasis on the word socialist republics. There, it's a, there's an astonishing lack of knowledge of history. Uh, socialism has, has a terrible, and that's an understatement, history. So there's, I'd say two things going on. One, just colossal ignorance. They don't know what they're talking about. And the second thing is there's, there's a political side to it. There's the feeling that corporations have a certain amount of power. Um, many corporations have more power than many people. And the feeling that, well, we need to seize control. We want to be in power. What I'm trying to say is for them, they see it as a power grab. Mm, interesting. Interesting. And, 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 and yet, and yet, 
do you see people actually, I mean, to me, you know, I, I look at entrepreneurs, I love entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs, they're willing to be in control of their own life. They're willing to, they, they want, they're probably the most libertarian people on earth, frankly, um, are the entrepreneurs because they go, you know what? Don't tell me what to do. I will do the right thing. Um, I'm, I'm going to do because the market's going to dictate that I do the right thing. And I'm not talking about, you know, I'm not talking about Google, Apple, et cetera. I'm talking about, I'm talking about the true entrepreneur, right? Um, that they will, they will try to do the right thing. Um, you know, from the, the one just starting out to frankly, uh, an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos, you know, during their entrepreneurial time. I mean, I think a, a company becomes less entrepreneurial. I mean, you know, Amazon's no longer an entrepreneurial concern. And I, I don't, I don't think uh, Google is or, or Apple. Um, I think, I think Tesla still is. I think there's, I actually think they're still in their infancy um, uh, in a lot of ways. Um, but we're, it, it seems like you, you've got this class of people that is willing to be in control of their own life. And they're saying, you know what? I, I don't need somebody else being in control of me. And yet you have this very large class of people that says, I, I want a boss to tell me what to do. I want a, I want the government to feed me and, and protect me. And I want Wall Street to take care of my money. I don't agree with the first of the three things. I don't think they want a boss to tell them what to do. I think there are a lot of young people who go into off businesses these days and have their own notions of how the business. Oh, and I, I think those are the people. Those are the people that we're we're talking to. And 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 I think there are that group. But there is a very large group of people just want a job. Mm -hmm. My feeling is that one. There's as I said. There's there's a lack of knowledge of history. But uh, more importantly, I think a lot of these people, and we'll call it the left side of the spectrum, feel this is their way to assert their power vis-a-vis -vis the big companies in America. Okay. They feel they can't do it through entrepreneurship. What is a good entrepreneur? They come up with a great idea and usurp other businesses. They can't do that. So they, could, they feel maybe they could get power through the political system. They wow. can't get through the economic system, though, so they'll go the route of getting through the, the political the political system. Interesting. And, and yet what's interesting to me is um, it, when you when you look at some of the big companies, a lot of them uh, really veer to the left, certainly in their in their um, social and political views. So uh, are, are they just trying to, I mean, you know, are the, the, the like big tech, especially, are they um, like just trying to, you know, appease people or do they actually believe, do, do, do they believe it? I, it, it seems like a, it's a paradox to me. This is, the book tries to do away with these labels. And I, I read you the first sentence of the book because it just shows how, how distorted the term socialism is. I think there are a lot of people who, um, who are just, again, they're ignorant of history and they have their own ulterior motives. And so you get all of these, these types of um, unhelpful views. And the goal for your listeners, for me, for the people I wrote the book for is, is to try to use common sense and think about what makes sense. Obviously, anyone saying reg all regulation is bad or all regulation is good, that's not helpful. We need some basic common sense, cost-effective regulations to make sure we all live in a free and healthy economy. So, so for the average person, what's the one thing they, they can personally do? Um, because that, that one person, we're not going to change the system. Uh, one person isn't. So what's the one person going to do? Pay attention to politics. There's an old adage, democracy is not a spectator sport. 
uh, you get the government you show up for. What do I mean by show up for? I mean vote. And you get a lot of demagogues, a lot of very destructive people in office because they have the, their influence in the media and they're on social networks. And that's not helpful. I think if all of us carefully analyzed who was running for office, who had the best common sense, who was the most rational, who was the most reasonable, we'd have a much better uh, government and a much better economy as a result. Awesome. Thank you so much, Howard. Uh, the book is Understandable Economics, um, because understanding our economy is easier than you think and more important than you know. Uh, the website is Howard uh, Yaris, uh, Y-A-R-U-S-S, Yaris. Okay, so that's the way I would remember it. Um, dot com. And uh, thank you so much, uh, Howard, for uh, coming, uh, writing the book, first of all. Uh, thank you very much for writing the book. Thank you for being on our show. And just remember, everyone, what, what happens when we start really understanding the broader side of economics and understanding how things work is, in the end, we're always going to make way more money and pay way less tax. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Tom. You've been listening to The Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. To learn more, go to wealthability.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.